Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. Dr. Laura Harris is Senior Bioinformatics Scientist at NeuroX1. <laughs> there, I said it correctly. Uh, this is a terrific conversation that I'm having for the second time with Laura Harris as she's now 10 days into her altogether different way of applying her practice as a bioinformatics scientist <laughs> in a startup. There's a lot to learn, so I'm not gonna take too much time with this introduction, except to say that if I were trying to find a, a role model for the engaged practitioner, the fully engaged practitioner, who is in the race with change and a few steps ahead, in this case, in the world of medicine, then I would say, take a look at Laura Harris. You can find her frequently posting on LinkedIn, which is where I first met her. And uh, she's got an exciting new phase to her practice life. So here is Laura Harris. Well, folks, you know, I'm, I am in a very uh, appreciative mood right now because um, so much of what Peter Vale and I thought, wrote about, discussed in the podcast uh, has to do with the changing of change itself. The rate of change, the nature of change, as we can see now in this horrendous global situation we're observing, uh, even those uh, moments that we thought could never happen are happening and they're going to change again. So what's left <laughs> for us in the practice world is keeping up and maybe getting a little bit ahead. So I'm going to, I brought back Laura Harris, who I've been uh, tracking on LinkedIn for now, at least a year or two, because she has wonderful posts, but also because she is just a little bit ahead of change or maybe not. Hi, Laura. Tell us what your current uh, situation is, and then we'll talk from there. <laughs> sure. Uh, so I'm about 10 days into my new job as a senior bioinformatics scientist with a little startup pharmaceutical company uh, called NeuroX1. So um, I've transitioned now out of academia into an industry role, and I'm actually applying uh, the bioinformatics skills that I was teaching and uh, leading before in a more directed uh, capacity. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so academia, which is a, a big soft cushion in some ways for most of us who lived it, uh, we also refer to what's beyond the edge of the cushion, the real world. <laughs> and uh, now you're in that real world. That's uh, quite a jump. Uh, and, and, you know, you've been there 10 long days. You must know everything there is about this new situation. <laughs> but what well, does it feel? Why the jump and what does it feel like in landing in that real small startup, but very interesting sounding company? It, it's a really interesting company. I'll talk more about it in a minute. Mm -hmm. um, first off, it's not as scary as you make it sound oh. um, because I was in industry before. Uh, 
So um, I actually had a few years working at places like uh, Emergent Biosolutions, who back in the day was called Bioport, um, on the anthrax vaccine development. I also worked at Pfizer as a scientific project associate for about a year and a half or two years. Um, So I've been in and out of industry, uh, particularly pharmaceuticals, for all of my career as I weaved back and forth with academia. Um, Really settled in academia about 10 years or so ago uh, because of children. Uh, It was hard being in pharmaceuticals full time, uh, really had to devote a lot of my time to that. Sometimes I was traveling and that was just not conducive to having babies around. Mm -hmm. Uh, Academia was great for having babies around. You had a somewhat set schedule. You could be flexible with that. Um, And there's security in academia that, uh, I don't know, we will see in one year (laughs) if I'm going to miss that or not. Um, I'm going to put you down for a year from now for the another Laura Harris episode. Do I still have a job in a year? Yes, that'll be the name of the episode. My my prediction is someone I haven't met you in person, but I've been following you, as I said, is that you will have a job. It may not be here or it may be there, but a whole different job. Uh, and I, I do understand the relative stability of your time at Michigan in, you know, when you're, when you're trying to have that kind of uh, lively career, you also want to make sure your, your kids have uh, what they need. I am assuming that your family has reached the point where when you said, I'm not sure I want to keep doing this. I want to do something different that they were saying. Okay. For sure. Uh, I have a very supportive family always have probably always will. I'm very grateful for them for that. Um, And the kids now are in their teenage years. So they not only get to watch, sometimes they get to contribute in research projects, uh, particularly when quarantine started and we were all forced to be together. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's fun to not only explore my research interests, but now to watch my kids have their own interests in different areas and to explore those, for example. What are they uh, focusing on right now? Uh, My older daughter is about to be 15. Uh, She is just finishing up a quantum computing class through MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Um, Mm -hmm. but it's geared towards high school students. So it's not like she's doing intimidating calculus yet, Um, Uh but she's not afraid of that calculus and is really excited to learn the math and then revisit quantum computing in her future. Um, Uh, So that's her area. And then my younger one will be 12 in September and she's looking more into medicine, uh, wants to go into surgery. So we'll see how that develops. Oh man. I I hear these stories about the uh, young, young teens of the day. And I'm very encouraged actually, Uh, whatever their minds lock onto, whether it's in the literature, you know, the arts, certainly in science, it, it, uh, is, tells us that the future is very likely to happen and it's going to happen with a lot new, a lot of new talent. Uh, now, the company you're in now is a startup. Yes. What is, that 
you know, it goes from sort of a school that was around in Michigan for at least 100 or so years to a company that that's just barely born. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why that choice and what it's like to be with those entrepreneurs? Sure. Um, compared to academia, it's a radical difference <laughs> um, <laughs> because academia, as you said, has that mindset of security. Uh, most of the people that I was working with at Michigan State University had tenure or at least were had a tenure-like or tenure-track-based positions. Mm -hmm. um, Davenport before that was not a tenure-track institution, but they did have longevity in terms of I was there almost eight years myself, and uh, you know they were not showing me the door I was looking to grow. Uh, with that said, then, the startup um, NeuroX1 uh, started around October, November of last year, so they're about six months old. Uh, they have gone through their first round of funding, which is why I'm actually paid as a member there, which I appreciate. Nice, um, but, you know, nice we custom. still, <laughs> yes, uh, we still need to, you know, grow our funding to continue. Um, and so that's been a change just in mental frame that, I have a position at Michigan State where they can't fire me until contract renewal in three years, but then I'm turning that down for something where we might blow our money quickly. Um, so there is a risk factor that goes into it, which is why I'm more willing to do it now in my career than earlier, um, because the kids are established and you know we've had money set aside uh, for these kind of things, you know, looking forward and try to be preemptive, as you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. um, why this switch to startup? Uh, that is primarily because of my own intellectual curiosity. Uh, when we talked before, I'm sure I mentioned that I had this group called the Harris Interdisciplinary Research. Mm -hmm. And so that was incorporating uh, bioinformatic research projects in the classroom, outside of the classroom with undergrads, et cetera. Um, and so basically that curiosity is a, a big part of me. And I don't want a job where I can't express that. And I found that going for the traditional bioinformatics jobs in the big pharmaceutical companies um, had some stability, but then that also means I wasn't able to be as creative. Yeah. They were coming to me with, we want this analysis done this way. Mm -hmm. There was very little room for me to say, well, why don't we look at this or why don't we do this analysis instead, um, where the startup company completely allows me that freedom because they need all the ideas they can get so we can grow and sell those ideas. So I'm encouraged um, as part of my job on a regular basis to you know, go on a literature bender, so to speak, and just read everything on any question I could think of to develop ideas and then pull data to support those ideas moving forward. So uh, it's the environment of the startup that really drove me to it over other industry positions. How do you um, feel, how do your energies feel now that you're um, doing something that really supports your creativity <laughs> probably beyond uh, imagination in some ways? And uh, how does it feel? Um, twofold. So because I'm so new to it, there is this feeling of where's the teaching? Mm -hmm. Up till now, it's always been teaching first, research if I get an extra hour, or on the weekends, or heck, 
date night, New Year's Eve, Christmas Eve. <laughs> when is the server available? I don't care. I'm going to use it. Um, but now this is my job. And so, you know, eight to five or whenever I feel like getting my hours in, um, I get my hours in and probably go over because I'm curious. But um, then there's that feeling where, you know, should I be teaching? Is there a class around? I should be doing course development. And it's weird how that feels like it should be there, but I don't miss it per se. Um, the research part always gave me great joy. And now I get to experience that more fold. As I said, it's a little hard to keep my hours <laughs> short. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how it feels. I think it feels great. I can always picture you, uh, you know, out, uh, out and about and uh, suddenly you see more than two people standing somewhere and you come up and say, hey, hi, I'm Laura. What can I teach you today? <laughs> it's funny and you, you could say probably that. pull together a lesson. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that um, when we were doing conferences in person before COVID, there's always the wall of posters. You know, you go up and down the aisles and sometimes hopefully people are standing there and you can talk to them about their work. Well, my husband used to joke that you could hear me from across the hall because I would be the person standing by the poster. And if anybody walked by, I would be like, hey, do you want to hear about my poster today? Oh, I see you're from this particular place. Here's why I use your data or here's how we can collaborate. And I would just grab everybody because, you know, that's what I do. That's I don't know. I think it's how I was trained by my dad, who was in sales. Oh, OK. I, I, I catch a little bit of that now. But it, I, I, you know, I've often um, said and somewhat lamented that the um, those of us who got into that cushion of academe really lost any interest in selling. Uh, and even the conferences you mentioned was so constrained and so prescribed uh that in fact if you wanted to do a little bragging it was you know at least in the management academy it was out of line mm -hmm. uh, you, you would i used to come occasionally to those meetings with a lot of enthusiasm because i was creating some pretty interesting teaching and i couldn't find a place to talk about it of course i found a home in the organization behavior teaching society but in the larger academy meetings is a it, i always felt uh uh, like I was delivering food or something when I came into some of those rooms. I'm, I'm not being fair to my colleagues, but I am being very, very appreciative of what you're saying, because I, I, I know that uh, academia will, will miss your teaching uh, until you decide to rotate another direction. Uh, but the teaching aspect must might actually be coming into play with your colleagues in this new company. Oh, for sure. Uh, I think they didn't just bring you in to do stuff. I think because you not only knew stuff, but you also could help them in a teaching way, in the best sense of it, drawing ideas out from them, mixing them like a good you know, chemical compound, and then uh, looking at it appreciatively and saying, okay, what can we do with this? Uh, do you have a, a, a already in just a few days and even leading up to your coming there where you feel a little bit of teaching going on? Oh, for sure. Um, and that's because the company is so new and so small. Uh, we really are what I would call administration heavy at this point. I mean, we have a CEO, we have a chief scientific officer, um, et cetera. But these are not necessarily uh, PhD trained scientists. 
Um, on the payroll, there's only two PhD trained scientists, and I'm one of them. So frequently, uh, like the CEO and the CFO and all those will, or CSO, excuse me, will head out to do the sales part and to do the fundraising part, but they're doing it based on the ideas of the scientists. So there's a lot of explanation that has to go on um, teaching from me on, okay, here's what I'm doing. Here's why I'm doing it. Here's the biology question I'm asking. Here's the answers I'm seeing and what they mean in a biological sense. So they do have some general idea, but you know that lack of training does give a gap that teaching fills. Um, and I'm actually looking forward to growing us even more because once we get larger, I'll be having people underneath me doing more of the computational work work. And that'll allow me to then do more of a different teaching role in terms of connecting with board members, connecting with other members of hospitals or laboratories or pharmaceutical companies um, to explain not only the work that I do, but also bringing those computational predictions into clinic. And that's something the company's looking to grow into as we get bigger and, and something that I seem to have a little bit of a niche in because mm -hmm. they're all artificial intelligence focused, and I'm coming from that very strong wet bench clinical background. I remember you mentioning a wet bench the last time, and I'm thinking that, no, what an interesting image, you know, but I get it. And I think yeah. that, you know, there's artificial intelligence and then there's Laura's intelligence <laughs> and uh, human intelligence, which I, I'm glad to see has a fighting chance, even with people who are uh, very, very interested in what computing can do. Uh, you, you certainly know how to uh, work both sides of that street from the middle and then so on. And the first thought I have about that uh, role that you're talking about is mm -hmm. that you have to find receptive students in those uh, founder CEO types that they, that if, if there was any sense on your part that they were looking for and this is not totally unfair to them because I don't know them. Uh, but I would sometimes imagine if, if they, all they'd like to have is a soundbite so, or a talking point or three bullets so they can take it out and shop it around. Uh, I doubt if you find that that is the depth of their interest. I think you probably find them very interested. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's a process. So we do have uh, what I'll call a sales slide deck, uh, something that was put sure. together, you know, that's under 10 slides, very general, not very scientifically detailed. And then if they're interested, of course, we can do later meetings, some of them involving me or other scientists to go into the details. And so what the CEOs have been describing is that they find people that are interested, you know, usually these are other companies or these are people that are um, uh, already have a bit of money, but have family members or are personally afflicted with a disease that they're interested in funding research for. And at that point, uh, they start a dialogue in terms of, okay, what 
money could you contribute? What outcomes do you want? Could we potentially provide the outcomes you want based on the money you're willing to provide? And once those are kind of hammered out in the beginning, then you can get into the nitty gritty of the science. Um, And you don't really want to do that before you have that initial talk, because then you're putting a lot of research effort that isn't being paid that might not pay off later. And in academia, that's fine, because we don't care. We're on NSF or NIH or USDA yeah. money, you know, taxpayer yeah. dollar, but the game changed. So <laughs> you're definitely yeah. getting the small business experience, <laughs> you know, in the best sense of small business, it, it uh, you know, the, they, they pay a lot of attention to cash flow. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and you don't want to be throwing, putting money into things that might not produce a, a, a purchase, if you will. Correct. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the nature of the company itself, and then I can ask a little bit more about the kind of work that you're crafting already. What does the company do? Uh, So right now we are focusing on developing uh, artificial intelligence pipelines, as they call them, in order to analyze different types of data, uh, right now publicly available data, but we are working on collaborations for privately held databases. Mm -hmm. And um, my job in particular is to develop these computational pipelines to analyze that data, to identify targets and develop new drugs for those targets um, around any sort of neurodegenerative disorder. Helps when I slow down when I speak those words. That's a hard one. Yeah. Neuro, it is. Neuro, neuro, de- yeah, neuro it's, degenerative. It's a hard disorder. thing to say, but it's a horrible thing to have. Yeah. That way. Well, it's an interesting project because I've spent some time studying the brain just from human anatomy and how it can play roles in like the gut microbiome axis, for example, because my background's microbiology and immunology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but There's very little definition around some of these um, neurological terms. So like we talk about things like dementia, but then there's so many different ways that the brain can lose the ability to memorize or remember something long term uh, that it becomes a problem to say just dementia. What type of dementia? What's the cause for that type of dementia? And even that can vary quite widely Uh, from patient to patient that we're claiming to have the same disease. Mm -hmm. So it's a completely different ballpark for me and a lot of gray area uh, to go along with the gray matter, so to speak, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. in, in microbiology, it's you versus the bacteria or you versus the virus. And I can measure, is there bacteria or are there not bacteria? And the goal is to kill the bacteria, Mm -hmm. but in the brain, it's not that way. And uh, it's a whole different biological ball game, which is way more intriguing than I expected it to be. I expect it will be. Yeah. Uh, looking at some of the electronics of the brain instead of the, uh, uh, the invasive characters um, that, that you studied before. Let me see if I get it. So your, um, your company will, will take a huge database around neurodegenerative disease and the service you'll provide is you'll provide a very deep, specific analysis or analysis that would lead to new findings within that database. Is that, is that sort of the idea? Yes, that's correct. So that's you in a way, You're, you and your fellow 
fellow uh, PhD scientist, they'll uh, ideally they'll come to you and they'll say, XYZ company has uh, this huge database on their persons over 80. Uh, and among them, there's a population that I think has this disease. What can we find out? Well, keep in mind that the first step is that database. Um, and there are public publicly available databases already out there uh, that accomplish the same thing. And we use them all the time. I used them for my dissertation, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, getting that data isn't always the problem. The problem really is being able to analyze that yes. data. Yes. And so that's part one for us is developing the computational tools to accurately analyze the data. Once that's accomplished, which should be relatively soon, then we can make predictions based on what the computer sees as to new drugs we can develop. So, for example, the other PhD trained scientists that I have on my team, uh, she actually is a computational chemist. So her main job is to take the targets, the genes or pathways or, or whatever biology target I say we need to change. And then she is an expert in using computers to come up with a drug that would then do the effect that my computer half is predicting. At that point, then we can take her predictions based on my knowledge base mm -hmm. and then put that into a laboratory and have an actual chemist make those molecules that her hot, her side is predicting. Mm. And then that goes into, you know, a Petri dish or a mouse or eventually a human. And that's really where we're looking to go. Um, getting the database is just the very first step and definitely not the whole vision of the company. It's all that middle work. Once it goes out to um, the mouse in the, in the laboratory, are you still involved with that? Or is your product something that you would sell to the laboratory to work from there? We are unclear on that at this time. Mm. Um, there are plans if we can get contracts of potentially expanding into laboratory and clinical space ourselves. Um, but there are that are willing to just take our predictions do a very brief wet bench or laboratory validation and then say, okay, fine, we'll pay you for this and we'll progress it from there. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. So what those options are is going to yet to be determined um, and will be very interesting to see over the next year. It makes it quite exciting. I, I could look over the top of my uh, monitor here and imagine that about 15 miles from here, I'm looking at Jackson Labs right here in Connecticut. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I suspect that they could be someone who would like uh, to hear more about what you're doing. Um, yep. Jackson it, gives us a lot of our transgenic mice. They do mice. And I believe they're also now trying to uh, do more actual research with the mice. So it's kind of an interesting moment for them. And, and, and for this world, I, I, if, if it was just, uh, just dementia alone that you're looking at, there would be a whole future of need there to fulfill. Speaking as someone who's about to become close to 80, <laughs> it's still firing, but uh, at any moment. And I know that it, it's a dreaded experience for a lot of us as we move you know, into our an elderly period. And um, it would be terrific to know that there'll be more medication and other treatment that uh, 
is coming in part because of, of you, of LaLaura Harris' decision to move from uh, Michigan uh, State to uh, this role. Now, as far as the actual locale, I think you mentioned in our correspondence that this is largely a virtual experience for you. Yes. Um, right now, it's entirely virtual. Uh, Nero X1 does not have a home office, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, because we are so new and because we are AI driven, we don't need a home office at mm -hmm. this time. Now, there are discussions, you know, once we get our next round of funding, potentially putting offices in New York because the big pharma companies are headquartered there. Mm -hmm. um, I think lab space in New York is probably going to be a bit expensive. Oh, so I Lord. have some <laughs> yes. other ideas. But uh, first, we got to get the money and then we can cross that bridge. Yeah. So there is a and, and yet the, I imagine since the pandemic has taught a lot of us that we can look work quite effectively virtually. Uh, that uh, it'll be what's I think happening again, as I see it here in Connecticut, there'll be the hybrid uh, kind of situation. Uh, yeah. the, those who are uh, have uh, purchased a lot of office space and, and uh, or, or leased it are not happy <laughs> with the fact that people have discovered that they can be effective, um, you know, without having to park and, and go upstairs and, or up the elevator. Uh, as far as your, um, your own practice, though, um, I suspect that you would want to be accessible virtually as much as possible hmm. in, in terms of the conversations needed to get, you know, the your aspect of the thought into the discussion. Have you learned a lot about how to be virtual? Because you, you, you're not really you weren't at, at Michigan. You were actually on the ground even during the pandemic, weren't you, with the labs and teaching? How much of that, as I recall, were you present on no. campus? No, oddly, when. OK, so let's back that train up before the pandemic. I was an assistant professor at Davenport University, and there we did have labs uh, for microbiology lab, general biology lab, human anatomy lab, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I was responsible for setting up and teaching some of those labs and then COVID hit. Yeah. Now, that was a whole fun catch-22 because the lectures went online, no problem. The labs were hard to transition. Yeah. And so we ended up replacing a lot of the hands-on techniques with videos, which really didn't do them justice. Mm. And then as I was leaving Davenport for Michigan State, there became startup companies that were addressing this through kits which I thought were brilliant ideas. Mm. So then you could go to the startup company and you would buy for $100 a kit and they would mail you, you know, perfectly safe chemicals and reagents and Petri dishes and pipetters or whatever you need to carry out certain safe experiments from your house. Wow. So I was really a proponent for adding those in as an alternative and even continuing some of the online classes um, permanently in the lab space, because some things like um, microbiology for nursing, they mm. really don't need to know how to handle a pipette. Mm -hmm. Petri dish, maybe for sample collection, but they don't need the molecular side of things. Mm -hmm. um, so there are some things where, OK, I can see a, a true microbiology major needs that nursing major, not so much. Um, 
And so that's when I left for Michigan State. Now at Michigan State, I was the director of training for the Institute for Cyber Enabled Research, which is a big fancy name for a supercomputer. Uh, there I actually worked about 13 months and I never had a key to my office. I worked entirely from home, and the day that I gave notice uh, to my department, they also announced, well, next month, we're going to start meetings again on campus. And I was like, great, I don't have to pay for parking on campus. I missed that boat. Mixed blessings, huh? Yes, yes. Um, And so, yeah, I mean. Prior to that, I was lead faculty area chair for University of Phoenix and taught mm-hmm. online for five years, uh, helped with online course development. So, yeah, online's not a challenge for me. You see my LinkedIn. I, I have. I have I definitely <laughs> seen it. And, and you're sort of the, uh, you know, the practitioner of the future. You, you, you name the setting. And uh, I'm sure that the people who are keeping up and staying ahead of change uh, have become very much uh, the, uh, the equivalent of amphibians. <laughs> You've left the water, you're on the land, and now you're in the air. Uh, what? Um, let me see if I can find the right way because I'm, I just glanced at my clock, and I, I want to keep this going. But uh, you're you're busy, and I I know our listeners uh, may have to get another Laura Harris segment soon because you know 10 days you, you first you are you're happy there 10 days you you're going to go on to the 11th the 12th the 13th oh for sure i'm hoping to go on to the 10th 11th or 12th year there you go um the the aspect that you've just talking about the, the computational you you had access to the supercomputer kind of thing mm-hmm. um uh, what uh, constraints are you working with now in terms of computing, if any? Um, not that much, oddly. So it was always a catch-22 with Michigan State because I was teaching people how to use the supercomputer, mm-hmm. but not technically allowed to use it for my own research. Oh. <laughs> and that was a bit disappointing, but I understand why it, it kind of was the way it was. Mm-hmm. Um, when I came over to Nero X1, uh, like two weeks before I started, they said, okay, we'll get you a new computer. And at first I was like, okay, I'll go shopping. Let me uh, take some time. And then they started throwing really expensive computers at me. And I was like, okay, we're a startup. Let's not go crazy. Give me a couple of days. I'll get you something that's reasonable. Oh, um, and so great. we hmm. compromised on something uh, that works really well for me and doesn't require me to use a cloud-based server. Now, um, we have talked about using cloud-based servers. There are plenty of cloud-based servers, IBM, Google, Amazon, mm-hmm. et cetera, that you can use. Uh, they are fee-based. And so for a startup, it's not always the best to use something that's going to be fee-based until you can get the money to pay for something that massive. Um, So the computing power I have right now is just fine for the little pilot things that I'm working on. And Mm -hmm. once the pilot takes off, we'll have the money for cloud computing. Yeah. You know, you, you really have a business head. I, I, uh, I must've, you mentioned your dad, but you know, you, 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 they wanted to give you something that you didn't believe right there was necessary in terms of capacity. You thought about the things that what you just recounted, but uh, there's a, a sensibility that I'm picking up, Laura, that, uh, you know, it's, you don't own the company, but you think like you do in the best sense of that. 
Well, I mean, I kind of feel like I do in some regards, um, because I put so much in terms of intellectual thought and, and property and blood, sweat and tears into mm -hmm. the projects. I really do feel like I have ownership of them, uh, which is something that motivates me. And I didn't feel like I had before um, mm. at Michigan State because mm. you're not allowed to use a supercomputer for your own use. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not uh, I agree with your opinion. I do kind of view it as my company um, in terms of what I'm building with it. Mm -hmm. I'd like to have an ideal world, every employee of every kind of company having that mindset, though, uh, so that they make choices that are not only good for them or their immediate surroundings, but actually can calculate, as you have done, what is this going to cost and how is this going to benefit the whole company if I do it this way? But those days are ahead and in, in another era, but perhaps you and your two lovely daughters will be setting the way uh, of a good common sense, but uncommonly intelligent use of your, your mind and talent. Uh, what uh, thoughts would you like to have cap off our conversation, if any, uh, uh, because you, you, when you write on LinkedIn, it, it, it's very captivating. Well, thank you. Overall, people I hope are listening to this podcast series, as well as looking forward to the book that I finished for Peter Vale about the nature of practice itself, the difference between putting in a day's work and putting in a day's practice is very different uh, in terms of attitude and even in terms of results. So uh, would you be an advocate if, uh, if I'm pitching this to you uh, for the choice to be a practitioner of something and more than just someone who does the job in science or any other place? For sure. I'd much rather be and hire and work with practitioners. They're motivated, they're excited, they're engaged. I think I saw a um, human resources person on LinkedIn this morning that was just talking about the difference between an employee that's engaged and one that's not, and how the one that is is willing to do extra work and has a more positive attitude and is willing to think outside the box, where the one that isn't engaged is phoning it in, so to speak. They just want to go home at the end of the day. They're not really thinking about what's best for the company or the position or themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so definitely be a practitioner whenever possible. Um, but it's interesting how life makes you practitioners in different ways. Mm -hmm. I thought leaving academia, I wouldn't be teaching anymore. But, you know, I've talked about teaching CEOs and other things about science, but also now I'm starting to get interns. And so now I'm also going to have to start teaching like I was teaching before, just not in a formal classroom setting. There you go. So life always comes around to practice. And, and I think that, you know, we don't leave uh, much of what we do and love doing behind when we leave a place. I really don't think so. It, we, really, we were relocated by choice, hopefully. And yet we find out that the rhythms, the, the vocabulary, the sensibilities that we develop in our previous work has a very good use in its new setting. Plus we get to learn how to grow some new, some new uh, uh, aspects to ourselves. It's a growing thing. And I, I truly love your notion that it's better to be a practitioner. Uh, I, that's what I'm devoting what I'm now calling my teaching uh, five or six years since I retired from my professorship. Uh, and I think it's a, it's the right cause for the right time. 
For sure. We need to put things into practice rather than just talking about them. There's too much talk as it is. Laura Harris, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this conversation. Thanks for inviting me back. We'll talk again soon, Dave. We will. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcast dash page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to inactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon.